Hello and welcome to The Haunted. I'm Freddie Young. And I'm Vanessa Mitchell. And today we are joined by our resident historian, the, the Sergeant, Sergeant Major. Major. Hi everybody. <laughs> um, we are going to, for the next couple of historical episodes, we are going to be covering a topic that we know the most about because we are going to be talking about our hometown and we are visiting St. Osif. Now, some of you may know it, probably not, uh, but it's a real, real fascinating little, little village. Um, we've, gr we've grown up there all our lives. We've got a lot of connections there, a lot of stories to tell ourselves. Uh, the cage was in St. Osif. Cage was in St. Osif. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a fascinating place. There's a lot of history, and it's all it's all quite interesting. Yeah. And it's called Saint Joseph because we've got our own saint. So we will talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But yeah, so that's what the next couple of historical episodes will be about. So stay tuned, and um, here we go. So we'll head on over to our sergeant major, and she will give us. She will regale us. Regale, I like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. you regale us with some uh, historical factia. Yes, conjecture, okay. factia. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's crack on with it. Um, this is a really big subject, so I've broken it down. So we're just going to give you an introduction, and today we're going to talk about the actual village itself, the place that you can actually go and visit. So it's a fairly smallish parish, which is in Essex. Uh, it's right on the coast and parts of the village actually extend all the way down to the beach as well. So there is a St. Joseph beach that you can actually visit. It also goes all the way out to uh, another side. It's like on a promontory sticking out. So it has um, a beach down to one side, which is St. Joseph, and then another one to another side, which goes up to Point Clare. So a significant part of the parish boundary is actually coastline. Um, and St. Osith is one of the few parishes in the UK which still maintains the tradition of beating the bounds. Oh. So that's uh, a very old-fashioned tradition where every now and then they would go around and actually walk around all the parish boundaries so everybody knew where the boundary was. So... Um, St. Osith apparently is claimed to be the driest recorded place in the United Kingdom. Correct. And it has an average rainfall of less than 20 inches a year. Uh, another landmark that you can pop along and have a look at is the Mill Dam Lake. It's filled and emptied from the creek. It's currently used for water skiing and other water sports. It, is, yeah. it used to be there originally. That's not what it was put there for. It was hand dug and it was there to provide water for the mill. The last mill itself was actually demolished in 1962. Uh, it hadn't been used since the 1920s. It was falling into disrepair. And during World War II, a couple of mines managed to get up the creek, floated on the water, and they both hit those, the sides and exploded. So mm. what was left of the mill was in a pretty poor state after that, and it was demolished. Interesting. The Priory itself, which we will discuss a later date because that's a huge topic but the village itself is dominated by this augustine priory in the center that is on just over 300 acres of acres of land and today the village has a permanent population of around some 4700 people but that gets a lot bigger in the summer yeah 
because uh, St Osith and Point Clear have a very large caravan park and holiday lodges and areas. So it gets, uh, you know, the population really does swell in the summer seasons. Inundated with chip eaters. Yeah, chip eaters, that's the ones, yeah. So, not that there is anything wrong with chip no, eaters. No, we like the chip like eaters. We like a chip, yeah. Okay, so it was mentioned to the Doomsday Book in 1086, and at the time... It was listed as having 41.8 households. I know that sounds weird to have a, a not a whole household, but that's how they, they kind of worked it. So that doesn't sound to us very much, thinking there's only 41 and a bit houses within the property, within the whole village. But at the time, it made it in the top 20% of the largest properties and largest villages of the whole of England. Oh, really? It was, it was very thriving. So it was it popular was, even then. Yeah, it was. It was. It was popular and it was thriving definitely. It also, in the Doomsday Book, there it's showing as listed under three different people. So they were the biggest landowners at the time. Essentially, these three people were known as tenants in chief, and they that was something that was awarded. So essentially, they leased parts of St Osyth from the king. He was the one who gave them permission to lease it. And then, obviously, everybody who lived in their section of land had to pay them taxes. They had to kick it back to the king and so on and so on. So those three landowners were the Bishop of St. Paul's in London, the Count Eustace of Bologna and Ranulph Peveril. This was, I know, this was all under the old feudal system. I'm not going to bore you with the feudal system. We quite frankly don't have enough time to even think about that. But if you want to go and have a look, if you go to opendoomsday.org, you will see all the information about the Doomsday Book. If you can read Latin, crack on. We but can there read, is, um, It's all in there, but it's all there for you. And you can see exactly how many cows pigs and people that Ranulph and the bishop of london were responsible for and how much money it earned them Ooh. so there you go uh the village church uh is dedicated to st peter st paul and the priory as we would see it now essentially started to be built around 1120 but again that's for another day just to give you some kind of context where we are uh henry the second gave the canons of St. Osith, that is the religious men who worked and lived there, the right to be able to elect their own abbots and the right to hold a market every Sunday. And that was in the late 12th century. Again, that doesn't sound great to us. So what do you mean you can hold a market? But in those days, that was because it then meant that your area could become an area of trade. Yeah, if people would travel there, wouldn't they? Market, you could travel and you could sell. Exactly. And obviously we're referring it to as St. Osith, but it's not actually its original name. Its original name is, is Chick or Cheek. It's some really spelt C-H-I-C-K or C-H-I-C-H-E. There are various meanings, but essentially it's an adaptation of the old English word meaning bend. And that's referring to St. Osith Creek. Uh, so it was the manor of Chick and nowadays most people tend to locals tend to refer to st osith as toosie mm -hmm. because to the bastardization of st osith toosie and people sometimes get known as toosie chicks there you go mm -hmm. all makes so much sense doesn't it yeah so um the so the manner of of chick 
was belonging to the royal of uh, the King Canute, who was the Danish king. I've heard of him. Who then, mm. he, yeah, yeah, King Canute, yeah. He then passed it down to Earl Goodwin, and he then gave it down to Christchurch, Canterbury. And these were all the people who had ownership and responsibility for it. And then by 1066, at the time, obviously after the Norman Conquest, it was then transferred to the Bishopric of London, which is why we can then see in the 1086 Doomsday that the Bishop of London is one of the people who has ownership and responsibilities for it. So um, in 2004, uh, Time Team did a dig in St. Osith. I was there. Yeah, I remember the day. Well, you now. I was at primary school and I had a I had a special day there. I was in the pub and saw them going into the social. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're very Fred, you're very very special, Freddie. That's why you had a special day. Thank you. There, there you go. So basically, they wanted to try and uncover the early origins of the village, and they always uh, before this they'd always assumed that the village had built up around the priory. Um, and the Priory, as we know, is, is 12th century. They actually found in the centre of the village very little of evidence of any settlement earlier than the 14th century. And the earlier village must have been some way off, literally behind the back of the Priory, right the way down to the creek. Mm. So what you think of as the centre of St Osith today is not the historical centre of St Osith. Yeah. So they tried to work out what was the development of St. Osith alongside with the Priory and to check to see what role the creek had played in the economy. So they found some prehistoric Roman and Saxon material. The earliest medieval period, they identified that to see that that was when St. Osith's prosperity population really started to expand. But they think that really the, the main part of the, the village and the population wasn't really much before the 14th century. So they found archaeological finds from the 8th to the 10th. So they do know there was some kind of settlement, but it wasn't really until later that the village really took off. The church of St Peter and Paul um, is now on the site of what was thought to be St Peter's Minster. So whether it's still the same building or it's a, a redevelop on that, I'm not sure of what's, yet. What's a minster? What do you mean by St Peter's a minster? minster? So, it was, so it was always described as having the Priory and St Peter's Minster. But we now know the, the village church to be the, chief, the, the church of St Peter and St Paul. So it could be that that was built on an original site. So let's have a look for you. So they... Did go and have a look. Uh, they spent a lot of time looking at the at the creek, and they believe that they found a wharf, and they radiocarbon dated the timbers to between 1480 and 1660. So settlement in the west area of the town certainly continued into the 16th century, but it would appear that growth to the village pretty much ground to a halt by the 17th century. Now they suspect that this is because of the dissolution of the monasteries. So once the Priory stopped being mm -hmm. successful and used, then the village stopped growing. So let's have a look for you. So they do believe also there was some evidence along the creek that there was some kind of smithing because they found um, a, a material that's left over from iron working. 
So they're not able to work out. There wasn't quite enough for them to think that there was a lot of iron working going on there or metalworking, but there certainly was something. So that's pretty much the background of the village as it is. So the, the, the priory was built on previous religious areas. The village itself was around the back of the priory as opposed to now at the front. Um, and it was very thriving and, and a popular place. So you're going back some serious, serious years ago there, aren't you? Because, of course, since yes. then we had the blacksmiths, the bakers. You know, when you go, say, three, four, five hundred years, there's a lot more kind of detail, isn't there? Well, a hell of a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us on to the next part, which is actually... St. Osith herself, and this is how the village changed its name from Chick to St. Osith. And that actually, we're now going even further back because we are talking around 650 AD. Yeah. So this is this is Anglo-Saxons. This is three, four hundred years before the Norman Conquest. So we're really going way back now. So, Osith, because obviously she wasn't born a saint, she was born in Quarrenden in Buckinghamshire, and at that time that was part of the Kingdom of Mercia. And her parents were Frithwold, get my teeth in right, <laughs> Far Frithwold, and he was a minor king of Mercia in Surrey, and her mother was Wilberger. And they were a very religious couple, and obviously royalty, very powerful. Uh, Wilberger's father is really something to behold. Wilberger's father, so this is Othis' granddad, was the pagan king Pender of Mercia. Yeah, very famous in history. Exactly. So Pender died in 655. Uh, he was a very powerful king who increased Mercia's land holdings and his power through many battles and years of rule. Uh, the Venerable Bede described him as the most warlike man of the royal race of Mercians. Now, Pender was a pagan throughout his entire life born and died one um, and when he was married his wife was Coonwise they had a lot of children and all of their children became Christian and some of them very religious and very much so so one of his sons ended up becoming the king of Middle Anglia his name was Peter Wolf here and Ethelred then succeeded their father to become kings of Mercia uh, Mirwal became the king of Maganset Kuhnberger became a queen and the abbess of Castor, St. Kunswith, St. Kunrith, St. Edith, St. Edberger and Wilberger. There are a lot of saints and a lot of very religious people of Penders. So whatever mm. he was doing, he was creating yeah, a very religious... Yeah. in the saints. In the saints. So this, this is just to give you a background of the family that Osith was born into. So, uh, Osith was uh, dispatched at quite a young age to go and live with two of her aunts. So, these are her mum's sisters, who are Edith and Edberger. Now, Edberger, I know that sounds strange, that's B-U-R-G-A. Is that e Edberger or Edberger? Ed. E-D-B-U-R-G-A. Edberger. Yeah. So, these two sisters um, were granted lands by their father and they built a small monastery in Aylesbury. And 
Osith was sent to go and live with them. And was it's interesting, sorry, isn't it, just for a minute, that he was a yeah. pagan, yet all of the children were deeply religious in yeah. a completely different way. I wonder yeah, how and, that and happened. He clearly didn't have an issue with it because he was happy to give them land in order for yeah, them to do what Yeah, because they... in those days he would have had the final say regardless. So obviously he didn't yeah. mind. They didn't follow his lead. Yeah, absolutely. Strange, and he would have had days. the final say as their father, let alone the fact that he was the king. Yeah, weird, yeah. Yeah. So um, so Edith um, and Edberger were looking after her in their monastery in Aylesbury. And in fact, Edberger in later life, then became known as St. Edberger of Bista, and she died in 650. And in 1182, her bones were moved to Bista Priory, and she became, became a very popular pilgrimage spot, so people would, would go to her, her aunt's grave. So, unsurprisingly, given her background, Ozith wanted to grow up and be a nun, just like everybody else. She was very religious, and she wanted to become an abbess on her own right. So one day, Aunt Edith has sent Osith to go to see Modwina, another saint at a later date. Um, and Modwina had come from Northumbria and Modwina was at a nunnery not too far by. So Edith sent Osith to go and see Modwina and take her the gift of a book. In order to get there, Osith had to cross a stream by a bridge, but there'd been a lot of rain and the stream was quite full and felt more swollen than she expected it to be. And the woods pretty windy, so she actually lost her footing and fell in and drowned. Nobody realised she was missing for two days. Edith had packed her off and assumed that she'd got there, but Modwina didn't know to expect her. So it was not till the third day that Edith thought, oh, Moses should be back by now. I'll go and look for her. So she went to see Modwina and Modwina's like, no, I've not seen her. The alarm's raised. They and everybody goes out searching. They found her at the bottom of this river and they dragged her out and they prayed over her and they commanded her to rise from the dead. And what do you know she did? That was the first miracle that was attributed to Osith. So she's allegedly been dead in the bottom of a stream for three days and she miraculously... Rises up. again. A mini she Jesus. She rises again, indeed. So as she's got a little bit older, her dad has not listened to her request to become a religious woman, like pretty much everyone else. He probably thought everyone else has. I want someone to do something I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he needed he needed political alliances definitely. Yeah. So he um, arranged her into a marriage with Sigir, who was the king of Essex. Now, there are some conflicting stories on this. The vast majority of stories come across that they were married. Some say that she also gave him children, and some say. They were never married in the first place, but the majority of literature points to the fact that they were actually married. However, because she was a good Christian woman and she had no intention in remaining in her marriage, she, um, can we say, managed to keep Sig here at bay to ensure well, that her... Well, I don't know if that's the truth. Impact. Let's be honest. I don't well, know if that could be the truth. Who knows? She might have said exactly. it for a safe face, but I don't know if that was going to work. 
so then of course then comes the story of the of the white tart yeah so um incredibly rare animal it was spotted uh which is a white stag by the way for people and and there is a pub called the white heart exact spot the backs backs onto the priory land this, this legend was supposed to have happened so um he's off he goes with all his men in tow to go and hunt down this rare white animal she sees her opportunity and she convinces a couple of local bishops to accept her vows as a nun by the time he comes back she's now been ordained as a nun so he apparently sulked for quite a while took to his bed and after a while came round realized that she was sincere and he wasn't going to change her mind and he actually granted her some of his land so he gave her this plot of land which we now know as chicks so obviously with some help from her aunties and everybody else in her family i expect she sets up a nunnery and she becomes the first abbess of this nunnery nunnery at chick now again there's there's some issue here with the dates um the story goes a band of danish raiders arrived up the creek in autumn 653. now that's a little difficult because the really the first known Viking raid on any religious house or anywhere in the UK was not till Lindisfarne in the late 700s. So these guys are either 130 years ahead of their time, or it was just a random one-off, or it was never recorded. But it's it is completely out of the normal timescale. Which so, doesn't mean to say it didn't happen. It's just like you it, say, could have been a one-off or, or not recorded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It certainly wasn't part of the general. And, yeah. and, and a lot of things in spark. history weren't, so we, we can go with that. And yeah. is it but, necessarily 100%, uh, you know, it was the, the Danes that did it? Could it not have been a, a neighbouring? Well, indeed. I mean, it's always described as as, as Danish, but, but we know that the first Danish raids on the UK were, weren't until 17, I think it's 89. So, so yes, you know, they, they could be uh, 120 years early, just a little scouting party. Who knows? So anyway, so they, they broke into, they came up on the creek in their boats. They broke into the nunnery, um, harassed the nuns, tried to steal everything they could get hold of and demanded that they all renounce their faith. Uh, Ozith, um, as we can imagine, clearly refused to do this and actually was uh, facing up to the Danish chief herself. And he was so incensed that um, she wasn't doing as she was told and that a woman, uh, a mere English woman, was was trying to dictate to him. He uh, demanded that she should be beheaded. So um, off came her head with an axe. Not to be deterred by something as simple as losing her head, Ozith then picked up her own head and walked it to the chapel door where she knocked three times. The door was opened for her. She placed her head onto the altar and then her body dropped. You see, this is where the story varies greatly. Now, the, the, the common story is that um, she escaped with some monks at the back of the priory. Um, now, this is I've read this in a lot of in a lot of places, especially when I was researching for the book. Um, she escaped to the lands. Obviously, she knew they were coming. So a few monks, she escaped to the back of the priory, the priory lands. She was obviously caught. 
And um, again, she wouldn't renounce her faith, so they beheaded her in the back of the Priory lands. And the legend is, from where, obviously, her head fell, um, the engine pond sprang. She picked up her head and she walked to St. Ozith Church, knocked three times, then collapsed. So um, the, the research I did on it years ago was uh, some scientists and doctors were saying, it's very possible that if she if the axe had just literally not taken her entire head off, it's possible that a human body could live X amount of time if she held it, if it hadn't been obviously a, a complete swipe. That's what, that's what they're well, saying. I, I also read when I was doing my research, they might have it, misinterpreted it and they'd slit her, th slit her throat. Slit her throat and... So they're saying it's visible for her because they do say she, whether it's St. Joseph Church or the Priory Church, she gets there, then she collapses but and it's, dies. It's, this, this, is, this, is the, this is the nature of storytelling, isn't it? Because I've always, I've really always know. known the story to be that, uh, yeah, she, 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 she gets her head chopped off and then where her head lands, a spring appears yeah, magically from the ground the and, it, and, and the water is healing and, and then she picks her head right. and goes. But it's, it's, okay. it's all... There's, there's so much about her. There's so many different variations and there's so many good historical stuff about her. I think it's just one. Does, believe does, what you want to believe. Does she 100% exist in history? Oh, yeah. 100%, yeah. There are many scholars that believe that she's actually an amalgamation with three different people. Well, I don't believe that. I mean, you've so, just given her whole backstory, all the th I mean, anyone can Google Ozith and read about her. I don't know how she would be completely fabricating. No, but if, because over time, th stories blend, I don't know, but they? there's a lot about her. There's a lot yeah, about her. Yeah. A bit yeah, too definitely. much for it to be a fantasy, I would say. They, that they believe, that they haven't actually located the site of the original nunnery that Ozith set up. They believe it is in the back of the Priory grounds in an area called Nunswood, which yeah. would make sense. It's called Nunswood yeah. because that's where the nunnery was. Yes. So that's alleged. But however, the whole carrying your head is quite a... It's well, that's a obviously a, a myth or a legend, isn't it? I mean, we yeah, know actually, something yeah. happens. They're actually known as, and forgive my pronunciation, they are known as cephalophoric martyrs. And she is certainly not the only one. Hmm. So, she was classed as a martyr by some, but the Venerable Bede makes no mention of St. Joseph at all. And then around the 13th century, the famous chronicler Matthew Paris then dict writes down some of these legends about her. So her ghost is said to walk along the Priory walls carrying her head one night every year. Yeah. And her feast day is the 7th of October. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's buried at St. Virgin, sorry, St. Virgin, St. Mary the Virgin at Aylesbury, which is the site of her aunt's convent where she was brought up. There is a spring at Quarrenden known as the Holy Spring and that is what has been linked to her legend. So I think this is where the whole, when her body dropped down, a spring came up from that. There wasn't a spring at Chick or St. Osith, but there is one at 
Quarrendon, which is where she was born. So I think that's where that that has come from. And it all gets mixed in, doesn't it? Into it one. does, yeah, absolutely. Which is why many scholars believe this is a, an amalgamation of several things. So um, it became a big site of pilgrimage, just as her aunts did. Although it wasn't officially recognised, again, because uh, some people at the time weren't, you know, it was she wasn't recognised as a saint as such. So there was a papal decree in 1500 to defer this sainthood upon her and the bones of her body were then removed from Aylesbury and buried somewhere in secret. Uh, there'll be, when we talk about the priory at a later date, there is reference there that one of the bishops there actually took her arm bone from the reliquary in Aylesbury and he donated it to another church. So, uh, let's have a look for you. So, the Catholic Encyclopedia, which was published in 1913, also doesn't really mention St. Joseph at all. Mm -hmm. But in the 17th century, a famous antiquarian called John, John Aubrey said, In those days, when they went to bed, they raked up the fire, made an X in the ashes, and prayed to God and St. Joseph to deliver them from fire and from water and from all misadventure. Yeah, I've read that. So, in Aylesbury... Even today, there is a 16th century farmhouse named after her. Oh. And you can still look at it for it. And very strangely, I've discovered uh, there is a farm in, in Richmond near North Yorkshire, which is also named after her. There is a large uh, landed estate called the Ask Estate, and there is a spring on the estate which has been dedicated to St. Joseph and the farmhouse that has been built near the spring has also been called St. Joseph after her. Also, between the 16th and 19th centuries, Joseph and variations of was a very popular girl's name in the area surrounding Richmond and the Northeast. The names were often known as uh, Scythe, Sithy, Sithy, Sicky. There are about 15 different spellings of it kind of died out after about the 19th century so um i have tried to see if i can locate a link between the priory owners who were obviously landed gentry and in some places lords and ladies and potentially owners of ask estate to see if there's a link there um but as yet i have not been able to find one doesn't mean to say there wasn't one because we all know royalty and landed gentry at mm -hmm. that time were all very incestuous and everybody moved around and everybody owned several estates. So that could be why it has ended up in somewhere as remote as 300 odd miles away in Richmond in North Yorkshire. That's, that is strange. Mm. But it's nice to know she carries through. Oh, she does. Good yeah, old There you go. So that's that's St. Joseph, and that is the village of St. Joseph. Thank you very much. And we love our little village. And we love our Roseth. Good old Osif. Say a little prayer to Osif tonight. Yes, all children of the village. Um, protect us from all misadventure. Protect yes. us from all misadventure. <laughs> now, I did find a little interesting snippet fact. In the Guinness Book of Records, mm. she is the saint who carried a decapitated head the furthest. Oh, fantastic. Were the Guinness Book of Records there to measure Correct. it at the time? Yes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yes, they were. There was a band with a tape measure and a stopwatch. They've been going stopwatch. a long time, haven't they? <laughs> And Roy Castle somewhere in the Guinness Book World of Records, sixteen fifty eight. Six fifty eight. Not even sixteen fifty eight. Six fifty eight. Um, so that was obviously um, 
again, it's it was, it's it's a very brief look into some very of brief, yeah. some of the myth and legend that surrounds this place that we call home. So I'm going to maybe kind of delve in a little bit more and and kind of give you a little bit more information on the background of some of the things that are said and also add a few more in. So I think I will start with one of the more interesting yes. um, myths and legends that we have from the village. Yeah. And that is that St. Osif has a dragon. Yes. Now, I know several of them. <laughs> a, couple of them have Personally. Moved, a couple of them have moved to Wales now. But that... A couple of them moved to Yorkshire. <laughs> one of them. <laughs> so there is... Apparently, a huge fire-breathing dragon that lived in the cellar of the priory. Now it's described as a not out of the way. It's described as a wyvern dragon. What am I saying? A, a, a wyvern, I think. A wyvern, a wyvern yeah. dragon. Now I had to look this up, and to understand what what that was, and basically, to give you an idea of it, is a wyvern dragon is if you think of how an ostrich would move, mm. and it's on two legs, whereas a normal dragon has four, four legs, legs, four legs and wings. Yeah. This has two legs, and the wings are its two front arms. So it will move on its two back legs. Right, okay. Sounds terrifying. Sounds terrifying, but that's the distinct kind Description of... of the two dragon types, yeah. The difference. Mm. And it is said... That on the 9th of March, 1170... Now, I don't know if this is correlated with your history facts. It won't do, so just get on with our myths and legends. <laughs> it, it, it attacked a house in the village. And it is said that the creature was spitting fire. And that the air surrounding it became so hot that the whole village caught fire. Well, we know the village burnt down a few times. We know that. I don't know if it was the dragon. Well, it was a dragon that lived in the priory. In the cellar. Well, I don't know why you say it like that, because I think anything is possible. I'm, you know, listen, there's stranger things have happened. I, I just think <laughs> maybe a dragon's a bit out there. Maybe the people have interpreted something, yeah, as, something. as a dragon. Look, I, I tell you my, my thing about dragons is, no, I don't believe they breathe fire. What I do believe, it is not beyond the realms of possibility that in this planet existed a lizard-like creature that flies. Because we've got them anyway. Just make it a little bit bigger. They said giant squids didn't exist. We discovered them. They've said most things don't exist. We've discovered them. I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility there was a creature with wings like a big lizard flew about. Okay, we haven't found a skeleton of white. We probably have somewhere. They probably covered it up. Well, but okay. Yeah, okay. I don't think it's... Of course, they want to breathe fire. I would say that's too fantastical, even for my brain. But uh, I, I don't put it out of the way. See, I'm going more with, like, maybe some arrows that are on fire or something coming from what, the What, so distance. you're saying that you and don't a, think it's and a, and a, at all? Like a roar of a trumpet and then loads of... Uh, fiery arrows coming. Yeah, but what, what do you put the, the creature down to with the wings? An interpretation. No. You can't say some fiery arrows became a bloody dragon. Listen, but there's reports maybe, of dragons maybe, throughout the UK. Maybe it's an ancient an ancient aeroplane device that we have no knowledge of that flew in. Maybe it was a witch flying on the broomstick. You never know. You never know, Fred. There's lots wings. of... <laughs> Cats flying off the back. Now, I did my own little bit of historical research and I found a website and you can type things in and it finds them in literature and it gives you the pages. So Go. I've been doing all Go. of that. So, 
there is a man called Sir Richard Baker, and he was born in 1568 and died February 1645, and he said, in the 17th year of his reign, meaning King Henry II, there was seen at St. Osef in Essex a dragon of marvellous bigness, which by moving burned houses, and the whole city of Canterbury was the same year almost burnt. And that is from the book called Chronicle of the Kings of England from the times of the new Romans government onto the death of King James. Wow. And that's, and that's... You're not a biologist, you're a historian. Yeah, I think I need to read that book. Before you start <laughs> with your bloody historical so facts, look, look, get on, on Myths and Legends bit. Get on to Sir Richard <laughs> Baker, and that is the longest book title ever. Is that the Guinness Book of Records as well? <laughs> longest book title. Um, and so they've done a little bit of research for that. So they said that King Henry II was born 5th of March 1133 and reigned from the 25th of October 1154. So they said that the dragon would then date 1170 to 1171. I don't know how they figured that out, but that's what they told me in this book. I mean, there's dragons throughout history and throughout many countries in the world. Uh, there's yes. something to it. Nothing starts out of thin air. There's something that's made this all become what it is. So no, and I'll, I'll we'll give probably you never know. I will give you that. that Until there they is, um, find the skellies. A lot of, it's in a lot of cultures, in a lot of different time periods. Yeah, and absolutely. They're there, all very similar depictions. Yeah, depiction, there's something, so. yeah. There's, there's something to it, I just don't know what. And um, I don't know if you know, so on the gatehouse to the Priory, there's a big stone um, yeah. column entranceway. And in the corners are dragons, um, carved into the cornerways of the priory and some say that that feeds into the myth the legend historian what are you saying about that the gatehouse was built in the 15th century so it was a, an addition so the the dragons on the gatehouse came after the alleged dragon oh well, of course they would have done 300 yeah. years later because they'd heard about it so they decided to honor the you know mark that as dragons yeah or it could be that there was someone who was Welsh. No, the English wouldn't have allowed that. Come and carve your dragon on our bloody gatehouse. I don't think that was going to be allowed. Goodness. <laughs> well, I will have to, uh, I'll have to look into that for the Priory. Because yes. I, I know when the gatehouse was built and who built it, so I will look and see. If, if he was Welsh. He may well have been and you'll eat your hat. Yes, you but want. he wouldn't have been allowed to. Just decide, so, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to carve a Welsh dragon into the English... Th he wouldn't have been allowed to. Right, well, listen. So it just goes a long way to show that the village has a very mystical history. We've got saints. We've got <laughs> ghosts. We've got dragons. Um, so, obviously, as well, you mentioned um, the White Heart or the, or the White Stag, which is part of the, the legend uh, of St. Osef. I and was it's... brought up in St. Osef, and, and same as you, knowing this story. And I yeah. think all village kids were. So, t tell our listeners about this. So, obviously, in, in the legend, the, the husband spots the White Stag, and it's a very rare animal, obviously. So, goes out hunting to find it. Now, Yeah, of course, obviously, he wants to kill it. To hang it up oh, on the yeah. wall. Oh yeah, first thing, oh let's go and kill it. Very, very rare, quickly. Osif, I'll see you in a bit. Let's just go and kill the bloody, you know, the poor thing. So I went to look into the symbolism of the white stag because in recent times as well, I have heard whispers 
and people saying that there's a what is still a white stag over in the priory grounds yeah. and things like that. So I thought, well, let's look at the symbolism of that. So it is a rare sighting to see a white stag in, in the wild, obviously, as we know. So when people see them, they interpret it as a sighting um, of vital importance of an omen of, of things yes, to come. Yes, an omen of good, I should So it, for most people, it is a sign of change and it's people... In all religions and in all cultures, it is a majestic kind of beast yeah. and it's a, it's a respected um, beast. I Whether... just thought of something. Do you think Ozith may have got one of Because apparently one of the pages or scribes ran up to um, him and said it. Do you think Ozith thought, right, OK, this is my chance. Get him out of the way. Possibly told one because she knew he'd go and go to hunt it so she could quickly convert. I mean, what... Something we'll never ever know, and it's 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 a guess. It's a, it's a wild guess, but maybe a possibility. We don't know, and we never will know, will we? Because no. So, um, because of it being white, it makes it very difficult for the animal to camouflage itself, yeah. and so the colouring and gives it innocence, purity, and vulnerability. And that's that's what it. That's how they saw that's, it. Yeah. yeah, that's how it's represented. In Christianity, they use a white stag to represent Christ, and sometimes the the stag wears um, a golden crown or it yes, has, you it has see gold. that often a white stag with a golden crown. You do see that. I've seen that myself. And, yeah. And in art, that is used to represent yeah. Christ. Um, and so they either wear either wears the crown or the chain, and they're both used to represent Christ's suffering for all of humanity. And that's in that's in art in the depictions of that. Um, the colour white as well has a connotation of Purity, deep, deep spirituality, yeah. illumination, faith, humility, protection, perfection, and the heavens. And it's just a very spiritual yeah. encounter. If you if you see one or I say, yeah, if you see one, it is, a, it is an omen, I mean, imagine it is a sign. the stag is one of my favourite and the most magnificent animal anyway, but imagine seeing a pure white one. I mean, just It, it does stunning. back up, it does back up the, the legend or the story of St. Osith as well, is that she wanted to become, a, join a religious order, was prevented, and then a white stag, which Appears. could be oh. seen to be representing God or Christ, came and lured her husband away yes. to give her time to then join. To allow so her that, to... So that again, exactly, that again is reinforcing... See, that's what I like. That connection is the type of thing I like, yeah. It's I... reinforcing that she was supposed to do that. Yes, yeah. yes. It, that's it, what I like. That yeah. was, you know, that was... That was good, meant, that was sent, God, yeah. in, God in form to allow her to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting, go interesting. Yeah, well done, Sergeant. Um... Yeah, so that's, it's very hard to give you um, stories of the village without going into some of the other things that we'll do in later episodes. So obviously, you know, some of the spirits of the Priory and some of the things that happened on the Priory and as well in the cage and, and the witchcraft and the witch trials as well. I mean, St. Is... Osith is so, so famous for so many things, you know, including the, you know, the, well, the Priory and the witch trials. It's just, if we open that can of worms... We've got six hours on it. You'll be here for two days listening to us. Yes. But I, I will tell right. now, I'll give you a little... We're turning into a geography podcast now. So, 
we are technically classified as a desert because of the amount of rainfall that we get. We are because the driest place. We have our own uh, ecosystem. We have our own we? ecosystem. Now, this is why. There, in, in St. Osef and the area surrounding, we have three different rivers and streams that connect, and mm. they all meet at one point. Each river and stream is a different temperature. So when they meet, they create um, an unbalance and a pre an air pressure, and that goes up into like almost like a vortex, and it pushes bad weather away. So in the last couple of days, there's been storms everywhere, and it's been absolutely coming down in Colchester, but nowhere, we've no, not seen never it. Never anywhere here, We've yeah. not seen it. We never get snow, really, when other surrounding areas do, and that is because then when them rivers meet, they create the... the is that, I've always wondered, is that, does that apply to Clacton as well, or just specifically St. Osef? St. Osef, and what's the farm on the bend at Point Clear? Royal well, Clark Potatoes, what's that farm? Yeah, but Leewick. Leewick. Yeah, Leewick. That yeah. is that that spot that is, is a the, stop point. That is the driest place in the UK. Yeah, well I used to live up that lane. There you go. So you lived in a desert for a, a short amount I of time. I used to live on a bungalow up that lane in the nineties. It was bloody magnificent. Well, you can imagine it was the nineties. Well, well enough, early 90s. enough enough of that because this isn't talk frank. <laughs> Um, oh, so, what I wouldn't do to be back there now. So Jesus. I want to kind of give you um, a few little tidbits from our personal experiences, our personal knowledge of the village. So um, another little bit of the history that we didn't touch on, that maybe you will in a, in a future episode, is that from a lot of the older properties in the village, there is a series of tunnels that connect and they all lead out and they're kind of... To the Priory? Priest holes, uh, Again, yeah, because that's, that's really... I kind of left that to the bit where we deal with the priory because, yeah. but it's, it, I, I, I didn't want to leave it out, but, but the discussing the priory became such a huge subject. Um, I don't like, I, I don't like the thought of thinking that, that St. Osef is nothing without the priory. And it's, and that's not the case because, because it has a lot to offer. It's not just about the priory, but the priory is such a massive part of the history of the place. It does it deserves its own discussion. Of course it does. Of course it does. And it's it's a, a huge... I'll put some pictures up of it on the, on the, on social media so you can get an idea and understanding of how huge this property is and how much, it, you know, the, the Priory... I used to live... We both used to live opposite the Priory grounds. Yes, so uh, we'd opposite see, the deer park. You know, we'd see the deers and stuff. Um, let's just... We, we will talk about the tunnels, as now we've said it. Charlotte... Um, Charlotte, um, our, our friend, um, lives uh, in St. Osith. She lives down. She... she lives down one of the the, the one of the main roads. Yeah, as well. and, and and tell us now, Freddie, um, about what happened to her. So I think she now there's a crossroads in the village, which is a, you know a significance for another episode as well. Now further along uh, from the crossroads, down towards the beach, there is a, a, another huge, huge house, um, very, very old, one of the oldest houses in the village. Now in that house there are. Um, they have a cellar, and in that cellar there is a gate leading into yeah, yeah. into a tunnel. tunnel. Um, is that where your friend lives? Yes, yeah, so she used yeah. she, she doesn't anymore. She used to live in there, and now it's a big house. But she used to there was only a small family that lived there. Yeah, so yeah. I would say it's easily six bedrooms, and I would say that four people lived there. So of an evening and stuff, very very quiet. And she used to cook for the family and and whatever else, and the 
stairs down to the cellar was from the kitchen and she would often hear the the gate to, Rattle, to, to the yeah. t- like as if but someone they're coming right yeah but right someone on the help. other side like help help yeah. help get me out get me out and she was always too terrified to go down and see what it was because i used to say maybe some, maybe somebody else had come through the tunnel was trying to break in or something and she was going well i'll never know well in my my childhood house along colchester road it was a huge six bedroom it had servants quarters and it had priest holes and when my dad we, we, we could see the priest hole that was in the cellar. But when my dad dug up, dug up all the floors, we found another one in the front room and the dining room. Two more entrances. So it transpired in the end, we discovered there were three. Um, and because my childhood house was quite a large, large house, that again, they would have... Um, I mean, historian, just explain to us why there were priest holes and why they would have been used. I know me and Freddie know because it's our kind of village history, but explain it in a better way than we can. Right, okay. Uh, in a nutshell, because that in itself is another whole long, long conversation. Yeah, just in brief. Um, when um, Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church and decided that England needed to be the Church of England and become Protestant as opposed to Catholic. Uh, Worshipping the Catholic faith became against the law, if you like. It was no longer the religion of the land. So you needed to pretend to stop being a Catholic and start being a Protestant. And those who were Catholics, many of them did obey the law. But quite a few of them obviously were in fear of their mortal soul far more than they were in fear of Henry VIII. And they continued to practice their faith in secret. So they would bring in Catholic priests from Europe and they would land at secret places on beaches and they would be smuggled into the country. And they would often travel around the country and stay in big grand houses and continue to give mass. Obviously, if you were caught as a Catholic priest or to be harboring a Catholic priest, it was a very serious crime. So the houses were built to hide priests in. Yeah. Uh, there have been stories that sometimes these priests would be in these holes for days. Yeah, false walls. General, we've all seen the movies. Yeah. False start, yeah, you know, uh, holes in the floor. Um, about, I can't remember where it is, but I know there's specifically there's a house which is famous for it, and there um, it's like little hiding holes underneath the stairs. Yeah, and there was literally just enough room for a or the panelled walls. There'd be a false panel. Indeed, there yeah. would be secret, so, secret hiding places. So we we the priests to live in. The priest would be in the house, but it was somewhere for the priest to hide. Should someone come and exactly? Okay, so that's so, fascinating. So I mean. Yeah, my childhood house had one, so it obviously came from the Priory. Now, St Osith in general, there's quite a lot of houses, including up Colchester Road, um, and many other places that do actually have an underground tunnel system from Now, I, I would argue that maybe the, the tunnel system isn't necessarily all priest-related and maybe some smuggling and stuff involved, because we're near the coast. I know that they suspect that a lot of the tunnels run to the beaches, so they would run you know, all the contraband up mm. and so into this, because there's one in, in the pub on the corner in, in the hoy and there's in the cellar, there is a tunnel 
and I think that building has pretty much always been a public house, so to speak. I know it's been like a Thai restaurant and stuff like that, but it tends to always have been something like that. So mm. um, I think that it has some relation to that as well. So we're talking pirates. Yeah, I mean, we know there were that 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 there was many people said there was a pirate spirit in the cage, and. Um, you know, lots of mediums and voice EVP, and lots of evidence pointed to a pirate, and he'd said that he was imprisoned on the cage for piracy. I think it was French or something. I can't quite remember, but yeah, I, I know there's quite a strong. What about his parrot? He didn't have one. He had one leg. And a black beard. <laughs> Why are pirates called pirates? Right, because they Why? are. Oh God Lord. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Well done, Freddie. Thank yeah. you. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. Yeah, excellent. Um, now, we, we have some ghost stories about um, the oh, underground yes. tunnels. Um, are we going to talk about them today or are we going to leave that? Because we're kind of running out of a bit of let's, time let's now. We're literally them. running on But let's, let's kind of give you a stop of some stories that just... we know. So yes, we can... okay, go on then. I was so, going to ask another question, but yeah. So... The village is, because of how old it is, there are, there's not a house you can walk past that we can't say there's a ghost story there. We know someone Yeah, someone used to live there or someone's so grandparents. Yeah. I'm going to give you some of the best ones. So in between the cage and in between the King's Arms pub, there is an alley. And we call that... Coffin Alley. <laughs> Dog shit alley, but Coffin Alley. Well, Coffin <laughs> Alley is what it is known as. And it's called Coffin Alley. I believe is because it's the most direct route from the church to our cemetery. Which well, is on, it is because they used to, on the gurneys, they used to take the coffins up past the and cage. That's why it's called so, Coffin Alley. So that walk would have had hundreds and hundreds of bodies, mourners, passing yeah. through that. And it's a very active and it's a very dark place. It is actually. active and dark. Now, there is a, there's quite a famous image associated with the cage connected to Coffin Alley where um, you take the, someone's yeah, taken a yeah. picture down there and you can see, is it three figures and something else? I mean, to be honest, I think that picture you're talking about is probably the worst out of loads of really good ones. I think that that one just got quite famous, but um, what I do know is with uh, paranormal groups in the cage, obviously Coffin Alley was a place of interest with equipment, with folk, you know, with cameras and everything. And a lot of evidence was caught up that alley. But I, I remember going up there as a child and I remember a good friend of mine, Kath, actually, that weirdly um, lived next door to the cage, but say 40 or 50 years ago. And she said the house was so haunted, it was ridiculous. So I must have been, I suppose, 17 at the time, 17, 18. And she'd had lots of experiences up Coffin Alley. And um, again, she lived next door to the, to the cage and she many times had spirits walking from the cage into her front room. She had lots of activity and she always put it down to, because she was quite a psychic anyway, she always put it down to Coffin Alley or um, uh, next door to the Cof cage. Coffin Cof Cof Alley is a very scary place to be. especially the at feeling. Night. There's, there's a feeling. There's something bad down there. Quite often I would walk down the alley and nearly every time I'd run through it. I'd never walk down it, not mm. at night, on my own. Because if I was visiting friends or, or whatever, sometimes it was the quickest route home. But Freddie, we have got that picture that I captured down there, which we can't really put on tonight because it's for a completely different thing. And it is a horrific picture. It's completely true. I'll just give you a little backstory. 
it was Halloween. I had about 25 people behind me. I was leading uh, a group, which I very rarely did actually, only, only on Halloween, never any other time of year, up Coffin Alley. And we stood at one point, we all took pictures. Now what came out in my camera was just unbelievably scary and it was basically a de it was a, a demonic face it was horrific and literally like a minion um but we'll we will release that at some point but it, it's it's not one for this particular episode and i you know but yeah it's a, it's a horrible horrible alley i think also as well connected to colchester road which is our childhood road so i lived at we both lived at one end didn't we yeah growing up there is a horse yes. that is heard i've heard it I don't know. I, I can't. I I might have. My bedroom was on have. the my bedroom was on the front of the house opposite the deer park, and one night it was dead silent. Uh, it must have been autumn time. You know, we don't get holiday makers here in the autumn or the winter, and there was no. And especially, I'm going back to you know thirty odd years ago. There was a lot less footfall in cars anyway. And I've heard a horse trotting, and I thought, well, that's weird because it was pitch black. So I suppose it was nine o'clock at night, something like that. Gone to my bedroom window and I'm waiting for the horse to go by. I can hear it go straight outside my house. You know, four o'clock. I didn't know, know the it was four, a train. No, do you know, you know, the, the four, you know, the, the sound of Clippity a bloody clock, horse yeah, it makes. Right. And it's gone straight, but not a bloody thing there. And and, and I'm and I'm desperate to see this horse. Like, who is taking their horse? Because okay, we get horses around here. Of course, it's countryside. But no. And I realised that I thought, oh, and this thing, because of course, we never had double glazing. I mean, that was 700 years old and it went straight past slowly and um, it wasn't there. So I never, I heard the ghost horse, I never actually saw it. But apparently again, a lot of people, you know, it's not out of the way to hear this a horse, lot, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people have. Um, there's also as well, um, a lot of, it's just a lot of the property, it's so difficult to pinpoint just one story. I think as well, you know, um, opposite the church, so in between the church and the priory, there is a newish building. I say newish, it's still hundreds of years old, but we have so, the social club, which is mm. to us now. Now, my mum used to work in there, she used to clean in there, and she's experienced things in there. And you knew somebody who well, was... Well, when I worked, there was an old cafe in the village called Gentry's. Now, Pat Gentry had lived in the village all her life, so had her family. Now, I mean, Pat's been dead, I don't know, 30 years maybe. But she was quite old when she died. Um, anyway, so... Hold on a minute, I've totally forgotten the thread of what I was saying. She used Remind to, me? So she used to clean in there and one day she saw the legs jerking out of the ceiling. Yes. Yeah, so um, the lady that, so anyway, so I used to work there as a kid, you know, 65p an hour we got, and there was a little old ladies that used to drink, a again, very old ladies, which is why the connection pack was old, so she has, used to have a little friends, and there was a lady, Millie, that worked there, and she actually used to work in St. Osith Priory years ago, but I digress, that's another, I've spinned on to two different stories, we won't talk about her, but we will talk about another lady that used to go and sit in there. And she said she was cleaning in there. Now, I must be talking 60, 70 years ago now because she was old when she told me. And she must have told me 30-odd years ago. She was cleaning in the social club and something caught her eye. And she looked up and she saw from the knees down, feet shaking and juddering. This is broad daylight. Um, as if... She said, and it was like legs that, that had been hung, you know, when they jitter and jog. 
Now, historian, do we know where the actual village gallows is? Is that something we know in scientific fact, where the village gallows oh, was? Because there's a few people say, oh, it was on the crossroads. Other people say it was opposite, which obviously is now the church. Well, the church wouldn't have been there probably in those I days. I always thought it was on the wreck. Do we know? I mean, there's so many different stories to that, of that location. I don't know. No. Uh, not, not every village would have had a gallows. Yeah, There's we know no ours did, but we don't know done. their subjection to where it was. It's something I can try and find out. Yeah. I, I, I think it'd be quite hard to find out. I don't know, but there, it would have, obviously, had a village gallows. Because, as you said, as you rightly said, it was quite an important town. It was a busy town. We were a town of some prominence. So it... It would have. There's many, many stories connected to hangings in St. Osith issue, which again we'll we'll talk about another day. Because obviously, if we if we carry on, we'll go off on a tangent. No, but again. It's, it's been really hard for this episode because obviously there's some blinding stories for you, but they connect to other parts of St. Osith's history yeah. that we can't, can't cover right, right now. now. Yeah. This has been. This is just to give you a little bit of an idea of where we lived, where we grew up, the th the stories and things that we were surrounded by, the myth, the legend that is connected to this place. And it's not until you visit that place, you, you walk along and you can feel the history there. It radiates from the place. It, the, it has an amazing energy. The house at the end of our road, Colchester Road, um, it's like an old folks home now. Um, our friend uh, Lucy Clements used to live there. And I spent a lot of time there as a child and her parents would regularly, and her and her sister, see maids walking through the house with silver trays and they would literally go about their business. And uh, it used to terrify the girls and um, Lucy's mum, Leslie, said that, and the girls would say, we'd be lying up in bed trying to get to sleep and the house was really active downstairs as if time was just getting on with itself. It was just being in that time frame. And her dad, Stephen, used to say, I remember him explaining it to me, because of course I lived in a haunted house myself. He said, it's as if time traps and it slips and it just replays itself. And the haunting in that house was so regular and so active. I mean, they would just follow ghosts around. Because well, my nan used to also go to that house and yeah. I used to go to that house yeah. as well as a child. The ghosts weren't interacting like they did in the cage. They were just replaying. They were getting on with their work and getting on with their jobs. Now, Stephen's position was back then, I mean, we would now call it residual energy, but his, you know, or, or something similar, but his... There was a so time quite forward thinking so, for the time. Yeah, and he was he was actually a college um, professor or something or other. Um, I think it was in Catering or something. But he was an intelligent man. But they knew they were living with other people consistently, and it wasn't a haunting where they were being singled out. Any of them. It was just a time slip where there were maids and lots of people in that house living a life in conjunction with them living their life in the 1980s and 1990s. It's crazy. But, but I remember going there so much as a child. I remember having dinner there with a friend of mine and saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, I've just seen a lady walk past. And then Lucy's mum does say, yeah, well, well, yeah, that's normal. And, and they literally didn't even give it a second thought because it was so normal in that house. Now, all of the stories that we've given you all take place on Colchester Road. Well, it's, there's a lot of big ancient houses. I would, I, I would say kind of Colchester Road, Spring Road and Mill Street. And Clapton Road. And so Clapton the, Road, so yeah. the, the, the four, four roads the cross, that, that the come off the crossroads, crossroads yeah. are your, they are the main village because the houses that were behind us on Colchester Road used to be an orchard that was owned by yeah. your family home. Yeah. 
and my family home has the well that watered it. Yeah. And so that was just all farmland. Yeah. And, you know, and then, it's... so when St. Ozzy was built up, it was estates. And it was, I say like estates, but really nice estates, not like you'd, you'd visualise well, estates. No, they're like little bungalows. Bungalow house, yeah. And... So there isn't, so yeah, the four main roads extended in all directions and, at the furthest points and, are and the most interesting. You know, the I, I know that nearly every single road on, every single house on them roads probably has some kind of story to tell. Oh God, of course they do. Look, a village like St. Osith, I mean, it's just, it's just alive. So I always say to people, if you don't believe in anything, you walk in St. Osith in autumn, you go in the evening, in autumn and the winter, just on your own and just feel it because you can bloody well feel it's it. A ma it's magical. And you don't need to believe in bloody anything. You could be a scientist that doesn't believe in anything. You just come and walk in our village at that time of year and tell me if you don't feel something because the place is alive. The place is alive. When everyone else is tucked up indoors with the chimney fires going... Oh, you know, with their curtains closed because it's fogging outside and it's cold. Yeah, all the fog rolls off the sea. You, you, you just walk in that village. And I've had many experiences myself where there's someone and you turn around and literally you, you can physically feel that you're not alone. And not down one street, down every street. And I think if you're a bit like me or if you have the kind of that ability and a bit like you, then St. Osith is a place to be because you will not be disappointed. I mean, Jesus, take a... Uh, an EVP with you take a camera I mean the place is so special with historic history and um, it has an amazing history I think I think you know there's there's some locations that have a good history but there's I can't really think off the top of my head that has a history that is so rich all the way through I think I think there's lots, but of course we, we love it. It's our village, and and because we've had lots of experience of the paranormal and spirits and ghosts ourselves in our village, we get it and we know it's there and we yeah. understand it. And this is this is the funny thing about the village. Um, I was talking to a man the other day um, who's done some work in the cage, as obviously the cage has been sold. And this man, you wouldn't think would have a bar of anything to do with the paranormal. He said, "I am telling you, I've been doing work in there." And there's this, 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 and this that's happened. And in the village, so many times you just get like normal men and lads that you wouldn't think are scared of anything and saying, listen, I've just moved into this house and I am telling you there is something wrong or my childhood house, you know. But I will end on a story that I, my granddad told me from the local pub. The now, King's Arms. The King's Arms. Our beloved local. Now... I think I know it is, but I'll save him the embarrassment. <laughs> okay, he's listening. Had had an evening at the pub and was walking home and he could hear something following him, a rustle, a rustling. And so he starts to walk a little bit faster and the rustling picks up. And then after about 30 seconds, his uh, fast walk turns into a bit of a run. And the rustling is keep going and going and going faster. He's going, and I can feel this gust come on me. Well, don't and... tell me he's got toilet paper hanging out <laughs> in his back trousers no. or something. Well, he's, he's <laughs> gone down the road and he's felt this gust of wind. He's turned around and a crisp packet hit him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, the good, the bad, the ugly. But that is, this is... Um, a very... It's an overview. It's a snippet. An overview of what... The some of the the good good stories and believe me there are some amazing and stories. And if you do come, come this autumn or this winter, if you two, see two weirdos 
um, out. That probably been me and Freddie. Probably us. <laughs> uh, but anyway, guys, um, next part for this will be coming soon. It's going to be a few weeks away because we and have we'll be so touching much on touching on the Priory and talking about the Priory and the history of because witchcraft. No, the witchcraft comes in the episode oh, is after. Oh, that the one after? Okay. Now, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Witchcraft might even have to be two. There you go. I, yeah, I think so I think much. potentially. As because well. what we want to do is we want to give the historical backstory plus the ghost stories. But, you know, so there is a lot. When you're talking about witchcraft and St. Ozzy Priory ghost stories, Jesus, we, you know, we, we need a lot of time for that. So we've had to break the, had to break it up. Anyway, guys, um, it's good night from me, good night from her and good night from Sarge. We hope you have a blessed week. And tune in because next Tuesday we have a crazy guest from America, which is not our usual type of guest we have. This is, what would you... What do we want to say? Are we gonna we need to give a snippet. Now the Barring any emergencies he will be on. To coin the phrase, I would say America's Darren Brown. Yeah. He's um very famous. He is going to, you know, well, for Freddie's actually been interviewing over Skype. Um you, you had an interview with him, didn't yeah. you? And Freddie said, right, okay. I took this experience to say, right, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. What were your words? Oh, I'll have a little... You didn't think that he could do what he... he well, in my head, I thought, right, well, listen, I know your mind games, I'll play your mind games. Yeah, I thought, we'll have it. Let's go uh -huh. with it. Yeah. I'll know exactly what... Yeah. No. No. And Freddie says to me, I'm telling you, this, this fella knows his stuff. Knows his but business. He's doing, um, next Tuesday, Dream Interpretation, which is part of the unusual. We're really, he's, he's actually very famous, but we'll let him next Tuesday say all that. So definitely tune in next Tuesday. Yes, guys, tune in. It's going to be a really, really good one. And also, guys, as always, if you, if you want your dream interpreted, email it yes, in. Yes, please, before Tuesday, so we can read it out to him. Re email it in. Sarge, if you've got a dream, you can email it in as well, my Oh, darling. God, don't bleed in her dreams. It'll be something like wenches and lords and ladies and all sorts of rape and pillage in her dream fantasies. She goes to the reenactments, Freddie. Yeah, good, I'd yeah. like to go. Get me a sword. I'll go fight some Yeah, bitches. God knows what her dreams are like. She lives in the... Um, but yes, guys, please email us in with your dreams <laughs> if you'd like them interpreted. I can't guarantee that everyone can because it's a very limited number that we will be able to do. But um, all the details for that will be in the episode description. Also, Sergeant Major's email address will also be in this episode description if you have any further questions on the history side of everything, you're more than welcome to pop that over. If you have any questions for the paranormal side of anything, please pop us um, any If you would questions. like a, a signed picture of Freddie in his blue silk kimono, again, you haven't had one person ask you for it yet. I think it's outrageous personally, but... Oh, Sergeant, what are you saying? It's funny that. Yeah. Well, well listen, I say... I'm a bit disappointed. I say, wooed. Wooed? Wooed. Would you like one of me in a green? Uh, let's see. We're probably we're probably getting. You won't get my kimono on. Well, I can get a different one. We can do double kimono <laughs> shots. <laughs> right, listen. I said I have a nice week about three minutes ago. Yeah. Okay. So, on then. Over and out, gang. Ciao for now. Bye. Bye.